We are in a section of Paul's letter to the Colossians where he is showing that true spirituality involves new life. That new life is a gift given to us when we come to Jesus for forgiveness of our sin, relying on his work on the cross. The words for that are repentance and faith. We turn from our sin to Jesus, our Savior. When we come that way, the Bible says we receive new life as a gift from God. We are rescued from the dominion of darkness and we're brought into God's kingdom. We who were enemies of God and alienated from God become reconciled to God. We who were dead in sin are raised with Christ to new life. So new life is a gift. And it is also a life to be lived. In our passage last week, Paul began to speak about the art of living our new life in Christ. It's not something that happens automatically. It's a bit like driving a car. We do not supply the power that brings the car to life and moves it. But we do have an active role in what the car does as it is moved by that power. Maybe someday driverless cars will take over and the art of driving will be lost. But living the new life we have in Christ will always require our active participation. It will always be an art for us to learn. And last week Paul began to talk about that art. He said it involves learning our new orientation to Christ's rule over all. It involves developing our new character, leaving old ways behind. And in our passage this morning, Paul adds another crucial aspect of all this. It was there in the background to what he said already, but now it becomes the main focus of what he's saying. Paul shows that new life in Christ is not lived alone. It ain't just about me and Jesus. New life in Christ is lived as part of a new people. We learn the art of living this new life in community, as members of a new people in Christ. So we're going to pick up at chapter 3, verse 11, and we'll read down to verse 17. If you're using a church Bible, it's page 1184, and in the larger print Bibles, 1831. Colossians 3, verse 11. Here, there is no Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free, but Christ is all and is in all. Therefore, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved, clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. And over all these virtues, put on love 
which binds them all together in perfect unity. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts, since as members of one body you were called to peace. And be thankful. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. And whatever you do, whether in word or deed, do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. This is God's word. And it tells us, as new people in Christ, we are called to display the unity we have in Christ. And we are called to tune our hearts to the peace we have in Christ. First, in verses 11 to 14, as new people in Christ, we are called to display the unity we have in Christ. In verse 11, Paul lists a series of distinctions between people, but he starts the verse by saying, here, in other words, among God's people, the distinctions I'm about to mention do not apply anymore. Whatever barriers used to divide you from one another don't apply anymore. And Paul gives examples then of what he has in mind. Gentile or Jew, circumcised or uncircumcised, barbarian, Scythian, slave or free. People who spoke the Greek language referred to non-Greek speakers as barbarians. And a Scythian was the lowest level of barbarian. Usually they were slaves at this point in time. So what we have here are distinctions based on religious background, Gentile Jews, circumcised, uncircumcised. We have distinctions based on nationality, language, and culture, Greeks versus barbarians, Scythians. And we have distinctions based on social status, slave or free. And even within a group that shared other things in common, there were distinctions of social status. So Scythians, as I said, often had a lower status than other barbarians. And of course, at one level, when a person became a Christian, those distinctions did not vanish. Physically, when people became Christians, they were still either circumcised or uncircumcised. In terms of culture, Christians still had the same cultural background they had before they came to Christ. In terms of language, Christians were still able or not able to speak certain languages. In terms of social status, Christians were still either slaves or free. At one level, all of those distinctions still remained. And they still had significance for people's day-to-day lives. They had significance for the opportunities people had or didn't have. But Paul's point is, here, here in the church, in this new community of people made alive in Christ, those distinctions no longer count for anything. They are no longer barriers that divide people. 
Now, they still have the potential to cause friction and division, but they are not to be allowed to do that. Because here in the church, what matters is Christ. At the end of verse 11, Christ is all and is in all, in each person who belongs to him. That reality unites us. And in light of that reality, every barrier between us loses any real significance. Now we all have the same spiritual status. We're God's children, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ, the Bible says. We all have the same spiritual background now. Once we were dead in our transgressions and sins, now we've been made alive with Christ. Each of us has been given the same Holy Spirit. We all have the same eternal destiny in the presence of God our Father and Jesus our brother. And we all speak the same language now. The language of God's sovereign goodness perfect wisdom and saving mercy shown to us in Christ. It doesn't matter if we've been a Christian for 60 years or six days. It doesn't matter if we've learned the meaning of big theological words or not. We all know we were strangers to God's love and goodness. But now his love and goodness have been poured out on us in the person and work of Christ. In him we've been raised from death to life. That's the reality. We are united in the things that truly matter. And we are called to display that unity. It's already a fact. Now we learn the art of displaying our unity. You can see that in verse 12. Therefore, after what I've just said about unity, as God's chosen people, holy and dearly loved by God, since that is true of you all, since that great reality unites you all, now put on the new clothes of unity. Put on these new qualities, these new attributes that will display your unity. Last week we remembered how in their sin, Adam and Eve made clothes for themselves. Genesis tells us that just after they sinned against God and rebelled against his authority. They made their own clothes, but Genesis tells us those clothes did not deal with their shame and fear. They still felt the need to hide from God. Adam and Eve needed the clothes God himself made for them. God provided clothes that suited them. We saw last week, part of the art of living our new life in Christ is to leave our old clothes behind. Our old ways. And Paul gave examples of those old clothes. Sexual immorality, greed, rage, malice, lies, and so on. We're to take off those things. And now Paul gives us the positive side to this. 
Here are the new clothes we are to put on. Verse 12. Clothe yourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We saw last time the old ways were to take off include both actions and attitudes. They include things we do and attitudes that we nurture in our hearts. And it is the same with our new clothes. Compassion is a heart attitude. It's a heart attitude that shows itself in acts of kindness. Positive, proactive care for one another. Humility, gentleness, and patience, they all flow from heart attitudes into behavior. Is it possible to be truly humble, gentle, and patient in what we do if we don't have those heart attitudes first? Not really. Or at least not for very long. We all know, I think, what it's like to try and display patience when our hearts are impatient. It's not long before we have smoke coming out our ears. So putting on these attitudes, these attributes, it's not just about behavior. It includes the attitudes we nurture in our heart. And some of us might say, okay, but... I would do a lot better with this if the people around me were not so exasperating. If they didn't do and say such foolish, annoying, and frustrating things. Such hurtful and harmful things sometimes. But notice, when Paul calls us to learn the art of these attributes, he takes it for granted we'll be putting on these new clothes not in an ideal world where there's never any provocation, we will be putting on these things in the context of other people's foolishness and sinfulness. You can see that in verse 13. Bear with each other and forgive one another if any of you has a grievance against someone. Paul assumes we will sometimes have a genuine grievance against a brother or sister in Christ. They will wrong us from time to time. We will be in a position where this call to bear with them and forgive them is actually meaningful. These words are not meaningful unless we have been wronged. These brothers and sisters around you are just like you. They're just like you in the sense that they are learning the art of living this new life in Christ just as you are. And just like you, they will sometimes fall short. They will sometimes appear in your presence wearing some of their old clothes. Maybe the old ways of evil desires or anger or even slander or lies. It shouldn't happen, but it happens. Those are not the ways of God's chosen, holy, and dearly loved people. 
But those ways still make appearances among God's people sometimes. And when they do, you and I are to respond not by running to the wardrobe and digging out a choice selection of old clothes ourselves. No, we are to respond by buttoning on the beautiful new clothes God has given us. Clothes like compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience. We're to put on those clothes that will lead us then to bear with each other and forgive one another. And by the way, we're not being called here to act as if sin doesn't matter. Sin does matter. It matters when we do it. It matters when it is done to us by someone else. In another place, Jesus gave directions for how to deal with those situations when a brother or sister sins against you. And Jesus' directions are not weak and watery. They're robust. You can read them later in Matthew chapter 18. Now in practice, clothing ourselves with compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience will cause us to overlook the majority of grievances. Wearing those new clothes will lead us to give our brothers and sisters in Christ the benefit of the doubt. We will not make an issue out of every little wrong done to us. But we're not called to let everything go and never challenge anyone or anything. These verses are about the qualities we are to have even on those occasions when we must confront someone. We're to show up to those occasions wearing our new clothes, not our old ones. We're to show up having prayerfully put on compassion for that brother or sister who wronged us. When we have to confront, we will confront with humility. Not thinking or acting like we've arrived at perfect holiness ourselves and we're just helping them to catch up to us. When we have to confront a brother or sister in Christ, we will not wade in with a quiver full of fiery arrows to shoot at them. We will go in with gentleness and patience. And look how Paul puts it at the end of verse 13. We are to forgive as the Lord forgave you. In fact, all these new clothes we've been talking about are qualities of God himself. As we put on these new clothes, we are displaying a little bit more of his image more of his character. And here we're told our forgiveness is to be in character with God's forgiveness. Forgive as the Lord forgave you. In the same way. And that cuts away two major misunderstandings about forgiveness. The first major understanding it cuts away is the idea that the person we're forgiving has to deserve our forgiveness. Did you deserve the Lord's forgiveness? Did I? No, none of us did. 
And the person you may have to forgive is not going to deserve your forgiveness either. So don't make them wait for your forgiveness until they've climbed every mountain and forded every stream. Until you feel they've suffered enough to earn your forgiveness. None of us deserve forgiveness. So we cannot withhold forgiveness on the basis that the person in front of us doesn't deserve it. However, we must not make the opposite mistake of thinking forgiveness is something we give regardless of the other person's attitude. That's the second misunderstanding that verse 13 cuts away. Did the Lord forgive you without repentance on your part? Did he forgive me without repentance? No. Now the Lord did not require you and me to do acts of penance, like the medieval monks who walloped themselves with sticks. He didn't require that sort of thing from us, but the Lord did require that we acknowledge our sin. He did require that we own up to our sin. And that is the New Testament way to God's forgiveness. Those who are too proud to admit their sin cannot be forgiven. A moment ago we mentioned Matthew chapter 18. In those instructions about forgiveness, Jesus said, where there is ultimately no acknowledgement of sin, there can be no forgiveness. Even when Jesus on the cross asked his father to forgive those around him at his crucifixion, there's no indication Jesus was asking for forgiveness without repentance. And here in Colossians 3 verse 13, forgive as the Lord forgave you, surely means that we are always ready to forgive. We're eager to forgive. We have a forgiving attitude. We do not harden our hearts against the brother or sister who has wronged us. We actively seek reconciliation. We make the first move to put things right. And we're always leaning forward with arms ready to run and embrace that brother or sister. But it cheapens the whole meaning of forgiveness if we announce forgiveness to those who show no concern at all to be forgiven. That's like those horribly misguided people who tell us that God has forgiven everyone. Everyone is reconciled to him. Even those who deny his existence and cling defiantly to their sin. That is absolutely not what the Bible says. According to the Bible, God's forgiveness is available. The offer is held out to all without distinction. But forgiveness only takes place where there is repentance. As we said, repentance doesn't involve acts of penance. That's not what God asks of us. Actually, God sets the bar wonderfully, wonderfully low for us. He does not require that we deserve his forgiveness. 
All that's required is a simple and sincere, God, have mercy on me, a sinner. And so when it comes to you and me forgiving others, we cannot require more than God does, nor can we require less. True brothers and sisters in Christ will seek forgiveness from one another. They will seek it eagerly and they will grant it eagerly to one another. Because we are bound together in love. Verse 14 says, over all these virtues put on love, which binds them all together in perfect unity. It's not so much that love is a separate item of clothing. Love is the material all these clothes are made of. It binds them all together. And it's love that binds all of us together too. We have experienced God's love. We know what it is to be forgiven by God. And that love God has shown us leads us to love one another. With a similar active love. It's quite significant that back in chapter 1 of this letter, Paul commended these Christians in Colossae for their love. They were already famous for their love. So this passage is not a rebuke to the church. It's a call to go further in love. To grow in their mastery of this wonderful art. This is a call to display loving unity in Christ in ever higher definition. In that sense, this is very appropriate to you as a congregation. You have no need to be rebuked in this area of love. As far as I'm concerned, you're famous for your love already. What we're being called to here is the exhilaration of going further. This is a reminder we will never max out our love for one another. We will never max out our ability to grow in Christ-likeness. As a body of believers, we will never reach a point where there's nothing more to discover about what it means for Christ to be all and in all. That's the last part of uh, what this, the last part of this passage is about. It's about helping each other grasp the riches of Christ more deeply. As new people in Christ, we are called to tune our hearts to the peace we have in Christ. In the previous verses, Paul said we are God's chosen people. We're holy. We're dearly loved. He said we're forgiven. And all of this came through Christ. That's what's behind the peace of Christ in verse 15. Let the peace of Christ rule in your hearts. Since as members of one body, you were called to peace and be thankful. The peace of Christ means the peace we have with God because of Christ's work. Back in chapter 1, Paul said, God made peace through Christ's blood shed on the cross. Jesus' sacrificial death 
dealt with the sin that separated us from God. Because of Jesus, the war is over between us and God. Because of Jesus, we are reconciled to our Creator. That is an accomplished fact. And now, Paul says, we are to let that peace reign in our hearts. We know about it in our heads. We're to let it reign in our hearts. And as verse 15 says, as that peace reigns in our hearts, it will have a positive impact on our calling to be at peace with one another. All the stuff we've just been talking about a moment ago. As Christ's peace reigns in our hearts, it will enhance our peace with one another. Well, how are we to do this? How do we go from knowing the truth of this peace to letting this peace reign in our hearts and then in our relationships? But Paul's answer to that is, we are to sing this truth. Singing this truth may not be the only way that causes the peace of Christ to reign in our hearts and relationships. But singing is the way Paul chooses to mention here. You can see that in verse 16. Let the message of Christ dwell among you richly as you teach and admonish one another with all wisdom through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit, singing to God with gratitude in your hearts. The message of Christ here is in parallel to the peace of Christ in verse 15. The message of Christ is the message of the peace of Christ. We often call it the good news, the gospel. It's the good news of salvation. Verse 16 says it's to dwell among us richly. That parallels rule in your hearts from verse 15. The good news of peace with God through Christ will increasingly rule in our hearts. It will dwell among us richly as we sing it to one another. Paul says we teach and admonish one another as we sing the good news. Admonish has quite a wide meaning. It includes to warn, to instruct, to encourage. And this tells us two things then about our singing in the church. First, it tells us the words we sing are super, super important. We cannot just sing whatever. We cannot sing a song just because it's very popular or because it's very catchy. What we are to sing has to be the message of Christ. It has to be biblical truth. And the second thing this tells us about our singing in church is the congregation is the main thing. The main instrument. Paul is not writing this letter to the music group in Colossae. You here means what it has meant all through this letter. You, the church in Colossae. You are the music makers. You're the singers. And the same applies here in Pelsol. It is your voices that are to be heard. We love our musicians. 
We thank God for every one of you. We're blessed beyond measure to have each of you. But our musicians are not here to perform for us. They know that. They're here to accompany us. As we teach and admonish one another through psalms, hymns, and songs from the Spirit. I don't think anyone really knows what the distinction is exactly between those three terms. Paul is just using them to describe the full range and the full variety of what we sing. The musicians are here to accompany you as you do that. And that, by the way, is why we don't have the musicians up here on the platform. The price we pay for that is this huge empty space. But if the musicians were here, it would be so easy to start thinking they were here for us to watch and listen to. It would be easy to forget you are the main singers. Now what we're probably used to hearing is that when we sing, it's to God. And we're used to hearing that what we sing is praise. It's an offering of thanks to God. And in fact, these verses mention both of those. Verse 16 says we sing to God. And three times these verses mention giving thanks or gratitude. So of course our singing will always include praise to God. But according to Paul... Our singing is to be just as much about singing the truth to each other. To help the peace of Christ rule in each other's hearts. But this does raise an awkward question. What about the preacher? Preachers might feel a bit uncomfortable with this verse. Does that mean I'm not needed anymore? Why restrict teaching and admonishing to singing in this passage? Well, Paul doesn't say singing is the only way to teach and admonish. Across his 13 New Testament letters, he does focus predominantly on preaching as the way to teach and admonish. But why doesn't he do that here? Well, to help us figure that out, we can ask, What is the main contribution that singing makes? What does singing do that other forms of teaching and admonishing don't do quite as well? Singing engages our emotions. Preaching can do that, it should to a certain extent, but singing does that best. One writer points out, it is hard to remain emotionally detached when we're singing. Now that is true for better and it's true for worse. That's why we have to be so careful about the words we're singing. A great tune can very easily get us emotionally engaged with lies. You may have had that experience, heartily singing along to something that you realize halfway through you don't agree with at all. 
Jonathan Edwards was a pastor and theologian from the 18th century. And if you know anything at all about Jonathan Edwards, you'll know he could never be accused of being a frivolous man. But Jonathan Edwards went so far as to say the reason God gave us music was to excite and express religious affections. Now, music might be used for other purposes, but that is the purpose God intends for it, to excite and express religious affections. Another writer puts it like this. We sing to engage our emotions with God's word. Singing is the medium by which God's people grab hold of his word and align their emotions and affections to God's. We can let our emotions be trained by sports enthusiasm, by television commercials, by movies, by songs on the radio, by whatever our culture defines as masculine or feminine, or We can let our emotional lives be formed by the church's singing of God's word. So again, this means the words we sing are crucial. What matters most is not the tune of the song. It's not the age or the style of the song. It's not the simplicity or the complexity of the song. It's not how many songs we sing. If the peace of Christ is to reign in our hearts, then what matters most is that we sing the message of Christ. There are plenty of aspects to that message. There's lots of scope to which part of the message of Christ we focus on in our songs. But the point is, teaching and admonishing do not just happen in the sermon. The sermon sets out the truth, the sermon explains the truth and applies the truth, and then in our singing, we engage our emotions with that truth. We grab hold of the truth and we align our emotions and affections to it. And we do this because... As new people in Christ, we are called to tune our hearts to the peace we have in Christ. So that, verse 17, whatever we do, whether in word or deed, we will do it all in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. We help one another tune our hearts so that our lives will be different. We don't just sing for an emotional experience in the moment. We sing so that our lives will be different. So our lives will display more and more of the unity we have in Christ. And so we will go out from here in peace to love and serve Jesus our King. That's what we're called to. And so let's help each other now to tune our hearts to the message of Christ. We're going to do that as we sing of the forgiveness and the new life that we all share as God's forgiven people. The song is, And can it be that I should gain an interest in the Savior's blood?
Now may the God of peace, who through the blood of the eternal covenant brought back from the dead our Lord Jesus, that great shepherd of the sheep, may he equip you with everything good for doing his will. And may he work in us what is pleasing to him through Jesus Christ, to whom be glory forever and ever. Amen.